Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Susan Elliott with us. Running a high school is like being the leader of a small country. Not that Susan Elliott has ever run a small country, but she believes that the roles require many of the same qualities. You need to have your core values and beliefs serve as the foundation for all you do. You need to listen to everyone, to honor and respect their perspectives, and to make sure that they feel heard, whether you do what they want or not. You need to consider your decisions carefully, to understand that each decision creates a precedent, and you need to be transparent about how you come to those decisions. You need to research carefully and to try to get as much information as possible. You need to treat everyone fairly with kindness, honesty, and respect, you need to be on the job 24-7, always aware of your position and your potential influence on others. And you need to have a sense of humor so that you can carry it all off and have fun doing it. Susan has developed these beliefs over the course of her career, first as a teacher, then as an administrator. She has had the privilege of being involved in the creation of three New York City high schools and has gone on to be the principal of Great Neck South High School, a position that she describes as the best job in the world. Susan loves the intellectual engagement, the challenge of helping people become the best version of themselves, and most of all, the opportunity to touch so many lives. She feels very lucky to have the family, friends, and colleagues in her life who have supported her in her career. So welcome, Susan Elliott. How are you? Good. Thank you. As you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I hope so. Yeah, I think so. I think you're ready. So Susan, can you share a little bit about your leadership journey and your current position now? Sure. I actually went into teaching late. I was 38 when I started teaching. And um, was it a shift in career? It's funny because I did all these different things that I would have told you were random, except they ended up all being part of what I needed to become a leader. Mm. So even things like I worked for an architectural firm for a while. And in doing that, I learned about design and I did some drafting. And it turns out that in each of the schools that I've been involved with, there have been always, for whatever reason, science labs that were designed that I actually got to be part of and to know about and to have a confluence of my understanding about the structural and design pieces of it and what the educational needs were so that you could have tables where kids could have a conversation and work together and That's have the right. That was so it was foundational work. Exactly. So who knew? Mm. So finally at 
38, I started teaching. I taught math in a junior high school in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. So you have a beautiful mind. I I love math. I love puzzles and, you know, matrices and all that. And I very early on started doing a lot of professional development. There was a woman there who I did Title I math, so I had a lot of support from the district. And there was one woman who really kind of encouraged me and had me working with other teachers pretty early on. Because even though I was a new teacher, I wasn't new to working with kids. I wasn't new to a lot of different pieces of it. So she was like your mentor. She was like my mentor. Yeah, she actually was funny. I Maybe it was my second year teaching. I get a notice in my mailbox that said that they were looking for teachers to do staff development to teach a statistics workshop to experienced teachers after school. So I figured they put it in all of the math teachers, you know, mailboxes, and I threw it away. Yeah, because that's such an easy exactly. subject to teach. Yeah. So the next day, I get another one. And I think, okay, they're really, like, looking for people. And I throw it away again. And the third day, I get one from this woman, and it says, Susan, please apply. So I said to hint, her. Hint. Exactly. So I said, Josephine, how am I going to do this? I mean, what if they say to me, how long have you been teaching? And she said, you're going to say, you don't want to know. She said, and believe me, they don't want to know. That's really good. I like that answer. It was true. So anyhow, so I started doing that. And then I started being involved in a lot of different aspects of the school. I did programming. I helped with the schedule. I was on like the shared leadership team. It had a different name then, but it was the same thing. And then I went from there, got my master's in math, went to high school, and started as part of a brand new school, an alternative high school in East Harlem, mm. and worked there for four years, where when you're in a little school like that, you wear a lot of different hats. And I got very involved in the running of the school. I never kind of decided to be a leader. I feel like it was almost accidental and organic. Mm -hmm. So while I was there, I met someone who had been invited to start a high school in District 2 in Manhattan, and she invited me to do it with her. So I went for my administrative degree, and I was part of the founding staff and assistant principal at Baruch College Campus High School. Oh, so I worked there for four years. I guess during the last year I was there, somebody said to me, how long do you think they're going to let the two of you to continue working together? Mm -hmm. I thought, what does that mean? And the day after the first graduating class, the superintendent called me in and invited me to start my own high school. Mm -hmm. So I started Eleanor Roosevelt High School on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. You founded it? You yeah. I, How awesome I did that? everything there. I picked the color of the walls, the faculty, the students, the curriculum. The name? Well, the name, it's a little bit of a manipulation. We let the first entering class vote on the name. We had a couple of different selections, but we name. kind of steered them. Mm. We wanted somebody who had been on the Upper East Side. Awesome. And because of the name, we actually got involved with her family, with some of her grandchildren, and that was really a wonderful thing. Awesome. 
So I was there for six years. And then I had the opportunity. I actually wasn't looking for a job, but three different people on the same day called me and said, <laughs> hint, oh, hint. yeah, I saw your next job. I saw your next school. And I said, there is no next school. You know, I'm happy where I am. And they said, just look at this ad. And I look at the ad and it says, are you a leader who, you know, this, 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 and this, and I'm going, yes, yes, yes. So I came and I interviewed in Great Neck. And during the interview, I was thinking, wow, these people are really smart. They have the values that really parallel to my values. And by the end of the interview, I felt like this was the right next move. So I've been here now for nine years, and And I love it. You're the principal. I'm the principal of William A. Shine, Great Neck South High School. Fantastic. Yeah. So there's been a pattern in your life. There were three letters in your mailbox. (laughs) (laughs) There were three people that tapped on your shoulders. Hey. Okay, so as a leader, how would you describe your leadership style? Well, I see myself as a facilitator. And I think one of the things that makes me a successful leader is that I'm not heavy into the power or the authority of it in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. I really see my job as being able to say yes to as many things and as many ideas, good ideas, as there are. So what I try to do is I work very collaboratively My two assistant principals and I work closely together. I work closely with all of the department heads. I have good working relationships with the faculty in general and the kids. And I really try to listen to everybody, to take their ideas and figure out kind of what the best parts of them are Mm -hmm. and how to then implement those things in ways that really serve the school. I really value being on a team. I understand that ultimately the buck stops with me and I have to be comfortable with whatever the decision is. But I wouldn't want to make a decision without knowing how the people it was going to affect would feel about it. And I also think that it's really important to be transparent about whatever decisions you're making so that the communication is there and people can understand why you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, when you mentioned facilitator, to me, a facilitator asks a lot of questions. So I'm imagining that that's what you do to, to get what they're feeling, right? To Yes. My own children would tell you I'm annoying by how many questions <laughs> I ask, but I like to ask questions and I like to know as much as I possibly can. I, I don't like to ask questions too much. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> it is my passion. I love it. Um, I think it's where you grow, too. Um, so, And you find out so much interesting stuff, that things that wouldn't occur to you. Right. Absolutely right. So which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Actually, there are two quotes. I think the one that I use on almost a daily basis, I don't even know where I found it, and I don't know who said it, but the quote is, Courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's a quiet voice just saying, I'll try again tomorrow. Mm. Powerful. Yeah. And I think it's kind of what you need because there are days that you're not really sure how you're going to face or continue or make good, you know, do the best solution of whatever it was that happened the day before. And just 
going in and plugging away and doing the next right thing, I think, becomes really, really important. You're absolutely right. It does take courage because sometimes we have these self-limiting beliefs or thinking and we have to go beyond that. So it does take courage. Eleanor Roosevelt said that you should do something that scares you every day. I love that. <laughs> We're Eleanor Roosevelt fans. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? Well, you know, I feel like I've learned a lot from just about everybody that I work with, and I almost feel like a mosaic of those people. But I would say the person that I learned the most from was my father. Tell me about he um, went to the fifth grade in school mm-hmm. and actually supported himself from the time he was 10 years old on and ended up traveling all around the world, being really an international businessman, spoke several languages, read three newspapers every day, and he just knew how to treat people more than anything else. And he kind of knew how to get the best out of everybody in a genuine way. He made everybody feel like they were the most special person in the world. And it's funny, I have many, many friends who, of course, knew him over the years, and every one of them quotes things that he's said. He really was a very wise advisor, and he walked the walk. He lived the way he told you to live. So I think that's an important part of leadership also. Is I was thinking, and I've, I've said this to people when I've mentored them, I am the best version of myself at work. Because yeah. you have to be. You know, you're Nobody you're else model. can do that. Exactly. Awesome. Exactly. And, you know, when we were talking about your dad, the word that came up to me was value, how he valued people around him. And that that certainly inspires me. I want to follow people who value others, right? Yes. And you want to have also that perspective where you can find something fascinating or interesting about a situation or a person. I mean, It's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. And I think especially in this business where you're dealing with youngsters all the time, you need to be able to find and to validate their value, what's special about each of them. Right. Awesome. That's great. Now, what's the best advice you've ever received so far? I (laughs) So far. (laughs) You know, I was at a principal's conference years ago, and I think it was... Jack Welsh, but I'm not even sure who the person was. I can't tell you what the rest of the day was. But he said, as a principal, if you're walking through your building and you pass a classroom and you see something going on that's below your standard and you don't say anything, you've just set a new standard. Powerful. And I think that's true for life. There are times when... I'm kind of sorry that he said that because I feel like it forces me to address things that I might not want to, but I think it's important. There's that Martin Luther King quote where he says, and again, I'll have to paraphrase too, but it's something about that the danger is not from the actions of our enemies. It's from the inactions of our friends. That's right. That's perfect. And I think, yeah, you have to really devote yourself to doing the right thing, whether it's convenient or not. Right, and it's a responsibility yeah. as a leader. Yeah, yeah. 
So you mentioned team. What does it mean to have a good team? And how would you build or sustain one? Well, if you're building one, you're looking for people kind of, you know, like how they say that a good friend is someone who's half who you are and half who you want to be. I think the same is true in a working team. You want someone whose values are consistent with yours and at the same time has skills that are very different from yours and hopefully even a a different viewpoint so that everything isn't myopic or single-minded in that kind of way. I think what's really important is to listen to people, to listen to them not just in the sense of kind of hearing them out, but really valuing what they have to say. And then I think it's important that you give recognition, genuine recognition, to the people who are important to you. People need it. Yeah, people need it. Everybody, yeah. I remember once I was at this big conference and the chancellor and some other people had gone to visit a school and these people were reporting on what happened when they went to visit the school and the principal was saying how they had gone to these different rooms and then they were talking with the teachers afterwards and he said first he was talking in all this you know educational jargon did they see the differentiated instruction and this and that and he said but you know he said really what did the teachers wanted to know he said they wanted to know what everybody wants to know did they like me did they think I was doing a good job And I think it's important that people feel not only that you like them and that you think they're doing a good job, but what it is that they're doing. Because to just say great, great means nothing. So I think that's an important part of team maintenance. So to have an authentic validation of why, you know, you think I'm doing a good job. And I think that's, that's really great. And I have to say, like, my team here... My two assistant principals are wonderful. The deans and the department heads and really the faculty are just incredible. And we, I mean, besides everything else, we have a good time together. I think it's important that you laugh, that you have ways (laughs) to break things up when things are heavy and just be able to have those moments together also. And that's extremely important. I mean, I think about the, the students that you lead here right? If you're not operating as a team, they see it. Oh, it would be very (laughs) frightening. (laughs) So tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. Um, Okay, I would say that coming here, taking this job, was a huge challenge. It was a different challenge than I expected it to be. What I hadn't realized when I came here was that I had never worked in a high school that I didn't start. Mm. So all of a sudden there were all these rules and traditions and ways of doing things that I hadn't invented, that I didn't quite understand. And everyone in the schools that I worked in, as high schools, especially as a a leader, people had signed up to work with me. Now – There was a selection committee that chose me, but I was foisted on most of the people, and they didn't know whether they could trust me or not. Mm. And so that was a big challenge for me. It was surprising for me 
never occurred to me that anybody would wonder if they could trust me or not because I I knew what a good person I was and I was coming from the right place. And you kind of forget how fearful people are. Mm -hmm. You know, Carl Rogers used to say that there were only two emotions, love and fear. And the extent that you were experiencing one of them limited the amount you could experience the other one. Mm -hmm. And so when I got here... And people were kind of a buzz trying to figure out who this person was and what did I want and was what I was saying true? Did I really mean it? That kind of way. That was really surprising. And you can't combat that by just saying, don't worry, I'm a nice person. Trust me, it'll be okay. You have to log in enough difficult situations where people see you being who you say you're going to be for them to start to really trust what you're doing. We started a conversation prior to recording about trust, right, and how Mm -hmm. important that is. So in that situation, because it does happen often, administrators come into a new situation and there may have been a culture there where, you know, it may have been difficult and so they don't trust. So how did you establish that trust? What were some things that you did intentionally to help build that trust? Well, the first thing I did, I spent... I can't even tell you how much time the summer before the first faculty meeting thinking about how I would approach the faculty. Mm -hmm. This is a very successful school. We have a wonderful, very successful staff here. And I think that they were afraid that I was going to come in being kind of the new sheriff in town saying, I'm going to clean things up when there was nothing to clean up. So I really spent a lot of time validating what had already happened and learning about what that was. Mm -hmm. The thing that was also very hard for me is on the one hand, I like to believe that I'm a lifelong learner and all that kind of stuff. I also like to know everything Mm -hmm. and I like to be right and to be in a situation. (laughs) Welcome to the human race. (laughs) (laughs) You know, be in a situation where I'm the leader of the school and they're asking me stuff and I have no idea. I don't even know, you know, where the classrooms are. It was a very conscious and important lesson for me to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to have to find out about that. Or, you know, that's interesting. Let me really think about that and I'll get back to you. And to allow myself that and to allow myself that learning and evidence that was a very important part of the trust because then I wasn't trying to fool anybody. I mean, I know how to lead. I know how to be a principal. I've been a principal before, but I can't answer this school culture question without some more information. And to say I'm wrong, it takes a lot of self-reflection. And that's big though, as a leader, Because you show vulnerability and authenticity. And I talk a lot about how important it is for the kids and for teachers to be able to make mistakes and learn from the mistakes. And that the bad thing is not making a mistake. The bad thing is not learning from the mistake. And taking responsibility. And taking responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so I was in a position where I actually had to do that myself. And I think that's an important thing to be able to do and it also lets the teachers know then that if you go in and you see a lesson that didn't work 
that doesn't mean that they're a bad teacher. That means that that lesson didn't work and we can figure out what you wanted to do and how to make it work. And that's certainly a way to grow trust. Yeah. Um, people see that and they, oh, okay, she's approachable. Oh, okay. She'll honor me even when I make mistakes. So that's, that's great. So tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped your life and the life of those around you. I would say probably my greatest success was starting Eleanor Roosevelt High School because it came from nothing. I spent a year selling the ideas for it, having all of the negotiation that went on around it, and making it into one of the top schools in the city and having the kind of community and the kind of communication there that went on was really, really important. It's provided a wonderful education for lots and lots of kids. Mm -hmm. Several of the faculty have gone on to do wonderful other things. And it gave me kind of the foundation to do this job here. Mm -hmm. You know, this is like three times the size of that and very different in the sense that this is a neighborhood school. That was a, a screen school, so you kind of got you could applicants. You had, from yeah, different I mean, and and it's interesting. I mean, we started out; we had a hundred and twenty-five spots. The first year, I negotiated with the district that we could open if we had a hundred students because it was after the application process, and there weren't a lot of students around. And I think maybe we had two hundred and fifty applicants. We took a lot of kids who were very brave mm -hmm. going to a new place, and some worked, some didn't. By the time I left, we were getting about 4,200 applicants for 125 seats. Mm -hmm. So it could be very selective. This here is a neighborhood school, and we have all different kinds of kids in it. Mm -hmm. So to end up with all of the accolades that we get and all of the success that we get and that's across the board we have classified kids who go on to do wonderful things we have kids who come in not speaking any English and come out fluent we have lots of kids who don't like school and end up liking it that's big and that's huge that's you know school. I mean that's yeah and yeah. kids who never tried fill in the blank you know mm -hmm. um theater or robotics or a sport or whatever and then do it mm -hmm. and who learn all different kinds of leadership that's all the kind of success that we have here that I don't think I would have been able to foster had it not been for the pieces before that mm -hmm. so you left Eleanor Roosevelt High School to come here mm -hmm. Did you have a say in who would be the principal after you? Yeah. You did. As a leader, that's part of leaving your legacy. Mm -hmm. How was that experience? Well, the person who went on to be the principal there had been my assistant principal. And actually, when I first met him, he was a teacher, and we had talked about his ultimately becoming an assistant principal there. So we worked on his leadership throughout. And I think it was a good exercise for me to recognize 
somebody else's value and that I was kind of giving my baby over to somebody who was going to give him a different experience. Mm -hmm. I think that what allowed me to do it was that we shared common values. Um, And actually, we've remained close. And it's rare that a week goes by that he doesn't call me about something. So it's nice to have that. That's part of leaving a legacy. Yeah. That's great. And now it's really his school. He's been the principal there for nine years. So, What would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their climate or culture? I would say that you just have to try and do the next right thing every day. And you have to really model what's right, whether you feel it at that moment or not. I think that one of the things that's important to understand in being a leader, and I would imagine you of all people would appreciate this, is the performance piece. You can't always share what your fears or anger or anxiety are at a given moment. Not that you can't feel them and that you can share them other places, but as a leader, you have to kind of go beyond that and figure out a way to make everybody okay with what's going to happen. And I think you're constantly working toward a goal, and you have to keep that goal in mind and just kind of plug away. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I used to love to watch Marcus Welby, and Mm -hmm. at the end they'd have what I called the little happy part where, like, the kid would be cured and they would laugh about whatever it was and everything was tied up doesn't happen like that and it certainly doesn't happen in the course of a day or a week sometimes it takes a long time but I think as you work at it day in and day out you see your kindnesses pay off you see your consciousness pay off you see your consistent integrity paying off and I think you have to really kind of trust the process and just do the next right thing and find some people who you can trust, who you can share things with and bounce off of and figure out perspectives and approaches that hadn't occurred to you. You know, what you said there is really key because sometimes you get so involved in that particular situation, especially if someone who's discouraged about, you know, it could be a toxic environment where trust is not anywhere to be found. But to have someone who speaks into your life, I think that's really key because they can help you to discern certain feelings or thought, you know, to help you proceed and move through that mud. And to know if you're being crazy or not. Yeah. You know, because sometimes if you're surrounded by enough of that, you start thinking, is that true? Is that who I really am? Or is that what I'm really doing? So you need to have feedback that you can trust. Right, right. I love that. Thank you so much for that. So many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? Well, first of all, I feel like I'm always learning the same stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now I'm grappling with new technology and I'm learning those kinds of things. But I really think that at the core of what I'm learning is kind of always the same stuff, which is how to be straightforward with people Mm -hmm. while being constructive, making sure that people understand that my job 
is to make everybody here the best version of themselves. So you're learning people. I'm learning people. I'm learning approaches. I'm learning how to be honest and effective and not offensive Mm -hmm, all at the same mm -hmm. time. And I feel like I'm constantly learning that. Today, I wrote an email that I had to send out to the community. And then I looked at it, and then I had other people look at it. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that it was saying exactly what I wanted it to say. And I think probably 10 years ago, I would have written it and sent it out. Maybe I would have had somebody. (laughs) Me too. Right? And now I... You learned. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm still learning that. I've not heard that. This is the first time I've heard I'm learning people that you focus on the same thing. And it's really leading people, learning from them, but also learning how to lead them and how to best serve them. So that's fantastic. I mean, most of the people I've interviewed are like that. But to have someone say, I'm learning this all the time, that's great. So what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Okay, there are three books. One is really a classic, which is How to Win Friends and Influence People. It talks about a lot of those skills, about the importance of things like knowing people's names, of really Mm -hmm. genuinely listening to people, and doing it in a genuine way. Mm -hmm. I think that's a book that everybody should read. Mm -hmm. Whatever they're doing, everybody should read that. A book that I read about maybe a year ago, which I thought was fascinating, is called Nurture Shock. I love that title. And that talks about how parents influence their children and what kinds of studies have been done to see how each of us shapes our children, maybe in unintentional ways, and how to bring out the best in your children. And it talks a lot about things like the importance of praising effort rather than accomplishment. You know, if you say to a kid, wow, you're so smart, how does the kid duplicate that? That's just a lucky accident. But if instead you say, you know what, you really worked hard on that and you figured out how to do blah, blah, blah. Well, that's something I could do again, you know, and that actually speaks to my value rather than some happy accident that as easily as it came, it could go. There's a a whole section that talks about children lying. And it says (laughs) how we, first of all, they can track babies lying. Babies at like eight or nine months old, they already know how to lie. It's innate. And how often we as parents don't really want the truth. Like when a kid falls down and hurts himself, and the first thing you say is, you're all right. Wow. Yes and no. You know, yeah, you are all right. You're not, don't have some terrible thing, but. So you dismiss what they're really feeling. Exactly. And you kind of teach them. To cover up. To cover up. I think I'm guilty of that. I, I, I'm telling you, when I was reading this book, it was like, oh, I better Mm. apologize to my kids right about now. And then the other book that I had never read, and I just read this summer, and you're going to laugh when I tell you what it is, was Machiavelli's The Prince. 
I have that on my reading list. <laughs> you should read it. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's using it kind of for evil, but when he talks about how things work, you learn a lot about leadership. Um, I'm also finding... Good and bad. Good and bad, but real. Also, I've been finding a lot of the work about Abraham Lincoln, team of rivals, and to hear about how he led and how he really invited people who had very opposing ideas to his, he really let them in and really heard them and figured out how to address, obviously he didn't give them what they wanted, mm -hmm. but to address their concerns and to treat everybody with humanity, even at their lowest points, mm -hmm. a big piece of all this is that when you're in a position of leadership and therefore a position of power, there are times when you have the potential to do somebody in. Is it Maya Angelou who said people may not remember what you did for them, but they'll always remember how you made them feel? Mm. I think it's important that you always maintain and kind of protect people's humanity because even if they're diametrically opposed to you you know they're people with hearts and you don't want to do that and when you're in a position of power to step back when you're feeling all those emotions right because you can unleash so to step back and kind of just get a hold of that and make that phone call right exactly and That's sometimes important. you have to um i had a situation a couple of weeks ago in my office with a kid and a parent and I was getting really angry and I said you know what we have to stop now and we can talk about this another time but mm -hmm. I don't want to go on because I'm really angry and I don't want to say anything that I'm going to regret that is wise I kept trying to figure out a way to spin it and mm -hmm. I couldn't and I thought okay take a break yeah exactly it's like a bad fight with your husband yeah <laughs> <laughs> take a break so um what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have? I mean, how many students do you have in the school? Just about 1,200. 1,200 students, and you yeah. have two assistant principals. That's a big responsibility. Yeah, it is. I spend a lot of time in the morning just thinking about the day. So and what time do you get up usually? I get up at 5. I leave the house by about a quarter after 6. And a lot of the time, I'll be going over something that happened the day before, whether it's a big thing or a small thing. And I think about it in the shower. I come up with ideas on the way to work. I try very hard to kind of give myself those spaces that are not deliberately about work, that are kind of quiet spaces where that stuff can just bubble up and I can figure out approaches Every day after school. Except for today. Except for today. Um, We're doing a podcast. Right. I meet with my two assistant principals at the end of the day, and we sit around the table here and kind of go over the day. And mm -hmm. it's a very nice thing. We'll talk about our personal lives. We'll talk about our families. We'll talk about what happened in school. We'll talk about what we're going to do about this big thing that we're dealing with and little things. So it's every day you every meet Every single school. day. There's a standing joke because I usually pick my husband up from work and he'll call me and say, are you leaving now? And I'll say, well, I'm with John and Sharon, but I'm leaving in like five minutes and it's like a half an hour later. <laughs> and he'll call again. He'll say, you're still with them, right? <laughs> Can I invite them over? <laughs> but 
I think that's really important, having that time evolve in that kind of way. I so spend, you reflect on the day. We reflect on the day. You set up for next Exactly. Next it's kind of, you know, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. You know, sometimes there are concrete things that we need to do, but often those kind of concrete things will set up other time for. And this is almost like having dinner together as a family. And that's, I think, very important, very valuable. At the end of the day, right at dismissal time, we all go downstairs, we watch the kids leaving, we kind of keep our eye out for anybody who looks unhappy or angry or particularly happy and, um, you know, chat with kids and kind of keep our pulse Mm -hmm. on um, what's going on in school. And then, you know, a few minutes later, we all end up up here and we just kind of go through whatever we're thinking about and concerned about so that's thank you for sharing that with us um you know speaking of family do you have i have two kids i have one grandson but my husband has three kids and two grandchildren so between the two of us we have plenty of kids no is your husband in education as well no my husband had an interesting career he was in reinsurance he was a fancy corporate guy left there and decided at 60 to become a nurse awesome went to an accelerated nursing program and now works as a nurse so amazing yeah (laughs) nursing and teaching you're just serving all day yeah yeah that's awesome that's Um, great okay educational leaders you know this we put in long hours i have to tell you most people i've asked this question crash and burn here because finding a balance is difficult how do you maintain balance okay well first of all you should know that i love to work and i work an enormous amount of time so a balance for me is probably not what it is for everybody else (laughs) we actually incorporate a lot of school things into what happens so the drama teacher here we have a standard joke that he only knows what the musical is going to be for next year when my husband picks it out (laughs) (laughs) we go to a lot of the shows i'll bring family members to different shows my nine-year-old nephew loves the international night and watching chinese yo-yo and the karate stuff so my children have been at all different kinds of performances and school events. I try to make sure that the nights that I'm not working are nights that have a consciousness to them and a purposefulness to them. And on Sundays at about five o'clock, I will not look at my email anymore. I figure if there's a real emergency, they have all my numbers, they'll get in touch with me, but I don't respond to email. I try not to do it even over the weekend as much as possible. Just to have some space. I take the job home with me, but I don't take much work home with me during the week. I will write reports and observations and things like that on weekends because I find it's very hard to do that in a regular school day and I like having the time to do that. I used to have a big bag full of papers and I would take it from here to my house, which I think every educator does. It would go back and forth virtually untouched except it (laughs) gave me the illusion that I was going to do stuff and make me feel bad. So now I don't do that anymore. I'll stay here longer. I'll do whatever I need to do. And I'll work it that way so that when I'm home, I can really be there. Especially now, I have a two and a half year old grandson. If you're with him, you really can't be doing anything else. I imagine that. It seems like you've intentionally married both. You bring your 
home life into work, work into your home life. So it's all a part of one big day. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, you mentioned purpose. How important is that for a leader? You have to have it all the time. You need to really remember what's important all the time. Mm -hmm. And one of my rules of thumb, and it's really helped me tremendously, is if you come into me with a difficult situation, I need to know that the decision that I'm making is not just for your situation, that I'm setting a precedent. And so that whatever I'm doing for you, I have to be willing to do for the other 1,199 students or families. So you're thinking on a large scale, global. Well, globally, because Mm -hmm. it can't be about that I really like you and the story that you're giving me, I have real sympathy for. And the next person who comes in, I'm not as crazy about, or their situation isn't something that I can empathize with so readily. You need to be able to be flexible and be responsive to make exceptions, Mm -hmm. but you need to have that other awareness in terms of what are the values of the school, what do you want to have happen, and not just what would be good for this particular student. I remember once I was talking to a parent who had a situation with their kid and they wanted them to change classes or something. And it was something that I just couldn't do. I don't like to say no, but sometimes you have to. And the parent was saying, come on, it's one kid. And I said, you're doing your job to advocate for your kid and you're doing a wonderful job. I said, my job is to advocate for the whole school. And so I have to do my job and say no. And I think you need to have that sense of what's important for everybody all the time so that you're not skewed in one direction or another. And, you know, we go back to trust. That way you can trust me. And if I say no to you, you don't have to think like, oh, maybe if I had spun it a different way or maybe if I had hit her on a different day or whatever it is, you can know that this is why I'm saying no, that here are the alternatives that I've come up with. I'd like to be able to satisfy you. This is as far as I can go. And you don't have to wonder if there's some underlying thing. And it really is, for me, all about what's good for the school. The times that I've had to let faculty members go, they're often for whatever reason, people who I really, really like. Mm -hmm. They're just not good at what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I'll say to them, you know what? Personally, I like you very much, but my job is to make sure that every kid has the very best support and teachers that they can possibly have. And I can't keep you here because I like you and I feel bad about you not having a job. I like you. I feel bad about you not having a job. And I need to make sure that these kids get the absolute best instruction they can get. Well, that shows that you have a lot of respect for the parents, for the teachers. And as a parent, I hear that from a principal, and I value that, and I honor that. Because you're not only telling me no, but you're also explaining why. And that's big, because sometimes when we hear no, but we're not told why doesn't really honor people. And I think it also allows you to kind of remember that your perspective is very different. I remember my son was in middle school and he came in in sixth grade. He had to pick a language. So he picked Spanish and it's the first day and they come into the Spanish class and they say, there are too many kids taking Spanish and not enough kids taking French. 
So we'd like some of you to switch to French. So my son raises and he'll go to French. Comes home. He's hysterically crying. He hates French. He doesn't know why he did it. He wanted to be a good kid, you know. So I call the school and I worked in the same district and I speak to the assistant principal and I say to him, look, this is what happened, but he really doesn't want to be in French. He really wants Spanish. So, okay, I'll see what I can do. A couple of days go by and he's not taking care of it. And finally, I call him and he said to me, there are a lot of other kids in the same situation. He's not the only one who was put in French and wants Spanish. And I said, I understand that, but they're not my kid. And I don't really care about them. I only care about my kid. And I started laughing because I said, oh, now I'm on the other side of this. (laughs) Yeah, the parent hat on. Right, exactly. (laughs) But when it's explained to you, you may still not like the outcome, but it also gives you a view of what actually happens in a bigger kind of way. Not just like, no, I'm sorry, we don't do that. Exactly. Great. So, Susan, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I think... I would tell myself that it's very important to be open with people about who you are. Part of what I felt early on as a leader was that you have to kind of spare people your personal stuff. One of the things that happens when you're a leader is that what you do, what you say, how you convey things is much more important. You know, Susan Elliott, the principal, has a lot more influence than Susan Elliott, the person, because you're not just who you are, you're that position and you're serving that. So it's important that you understand that and you allow for that. So for example, I get migraine headaches and there was a period of time when I was getting a lot of migraines in a row and I take medication, but I like to tough it out and I never miss work and I get to work and act like nothing was wrong. But the fact of the matter was, I wasn't the same person I was on other days. And when people would say good morning or whatever, I would come across differently. So what I started learning that I had to do was I had to say to people, when they said, how are you? Instead of saying, great, fine, I could say, you know what? I just took some medicine. I have a migraine. If I seem a little weird to you, it's not you, it's me. Understand that because my influence, my demeanor meant more than I was giving it credit for. So, I so think when you let that go, how was you're that? you're human. Did you get less migraines? Could you let that I go? I actually did. Yeah, I actually have less migraines now. And I think part of it was just feeling like you had to armor yourself in a way, like right. you could be an invincible leader and put your armor on and and then and not be vulnerable. And not be vulnerable. And the truth is, yeah, you're a leader, but you're a leader with a headache. With, you're a person. You're a person who happens to be doing that. And I think it also then hopefully allows other people to understand and accept and maybe even respect your personness in that. Because that's the other part of it. Sometimes you'll hear people and they'll say something like, well, in the administration, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, who is that administration? Because I think I know them and I don't think that's what they're doing. You have that authority. You're going to honor that. But you have to bring it back to your personness at the same time. Because that's the thing that we all have in common. And if you're going to trust me to drive the bus, you have to know that I understand your concerns I'm going to want to do the same things you're going to want to do. There are going to be times I want to stop 
and we can kind of navigate that together. Mm-hmm. So that vulnerability makes you human, but it also connects you with other people and you build trust. And so it validates big. you. Yeah. yeah. You know, it makes you more real. Awesome. So one last question. Okay. <laughs> it's been fun. Is there anything that we haven't addressed that you'd like to share with our listeners? With all the other stuff, I think this is the absolute best job in the world. Sometimes it's easy to get caught up in all the demands of it and forget just what a great job it is. I mean, first of all, where in the world do you ever get to touch this many lives? And where do you get in a single day to talk about ionic bonding and the Iliad and the causes of World War One, and be in an art class and look at art history and see a theater group. And that's actually, now that I'm thinking about it, the other thing that I would tell leaders who are struggling is go into your favorite classroom and just remember what you're in this business for. Because I think it's easy when you're dealing with all that other stuff to forget that. But I know if I'm having a bad day, the best thing for me to do is to get out of my office and go see an improv class or a phys ed class or a tech class, go see the robotics team, or go to a history class. There's a world of learning right There's here. A, and, oh, my goodness. I the, never even thought of that. And the kids are so fabulous. I mean, the teachers are great. Mm-hmm. The kids are so fabulous. And you have to kind of remind yourself sometimes that, Oh, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> it's not just the paperwork. It's not, it's not just, just the paperwork. It's not just the fires. deadline. It's not just, you know, calling back Mrs. So-and-so uh-huh. who's going to yell at me for whatever. And when you do that, it's the best antidote for whatever else you have. It's been so great, Susan. I want to thank you so much for not just pouring into my life, but for pouring into the lives of the listeners. I'm learning so much. This is you the best have job. a great job. <laughs> thank you. I really enjoyed this. This was fascinating. Great. Thank you. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to masterleadership.org to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of the exceptional leaders that are featured on this podcast. Until next time, bye.